low iron, high iron, how to investigate, what to do about it. That is today's show on the Low Tox Life podcast. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 345. We are now officially into our eighth year on the show. Thank you for listening, leaving reviews and sharing shows that give you big ahas on your Instagram stories and tagging me at Low Tox Life. I love seeing the impact different shows have for different people, given we cover so many different topics across food, body, home, mind, and planet care. Today, we are tackling the subject of iron, and I have the wonderful nutritionist, Steph Lowe, joining us from The Natural Nutritionist. Uh, Steph is a fantastic uh, mentor to uh, health coaches and graduate nutritionists. She really loves to go down the rabbit hole and explore holistic, big picture thinking when it comes to especially problems that plague people over and over again to create lasting change for her clients. And iron is something that has come up in different chat groups. Different friends have talked to me about having low iron. And there are some really interesting different causes that can play into a low iron picture on a lab result. And there are some really uh, narrow labs that can show perhaps an iron issue, but when you look more holistically, there might be other things such as inflammation at play. So we're actually talking about the lot today. We are talking about low iron, high iron. We're talking about the kinds of supplements and treatments that are often recommended like iron infusions or multifer uh, and why you might want to be looking at different solutions for lasting change and kiss- kissing that fatigue goodbye if you do in fact have clinical low iron. Uh, it doesn't have to stay that way. And then, of course, we talk a little bit about the higher iron side of things because whether it's hemochromatosis or other issues uh, there around transportation circulation, there are practical things that Steph offers today that anyone with any kind of iron issue can do. So we're going to hook into that in a little minute, but we wouldn't be here without our wonderful show supporters that help me put this show on every week and help you make your low-tox swaps a little bit easier on the hip pocket. Now this week we have the wonderful uh, natural bedding company who have been pioneers in the low-tox bedding industry in Australia for almost four decades, from the cotton futons in the 80s to the current range of beautiful organic latex mattresses and sustainably sourced Australian timber furniture. They are committed in a big way to onshore manufacturing and have a workshop right here in Sydney's Inner West. They have two stunning showrooms as well on the Gold Coast and here in Sydney. I have been known to probably overstay my welcome on some of the beds in their showrooms, just wishing it was my bedroom. In fact, wanting all the bedrooms with the way they style them. Uh, You can actually have a look at some of the stylings on their website, thenaturalbeddingcompany.com.au. They really do such a wonderful job. 
beautiful linens and all sorts of things you can get on their uh, website. But what I can offer you is 20% off the organic latex mattresses, the entire pillow range, love their pillows, and the organic cotton products. Your code is LOTOXORG, that's A-U-G, short for August, 23. So LOTOXORG23 is your code to get 20% off their website all the month of August. Uh, Any questions, you can DM them. They're really responsive, a really great company. Uh, I have even given talks in their showrooms, just my low-tox events that I sometimes put on in different places uh, because I genuinely love working with them and uh, sharing their gorgeous products with you guys. So you have that. And, of course, you have our major sponsor, Oz Climate who, uh, interestingly, I have a personal story to share here. My mum was starting to experience symptoms that I thought were due to excess dampness, a little bit of respiratory stuff going on. She noticed a little bit of mold on shoes in the cupboard. And lo and behold, once I convinced mum and dad to get another dehumidifier, because they've got one downstairs uh, for the uh, subfloor room that I sleep in there, uh, for mum's room. It's on the shadier side of the house. And she has already reported her sinus symptoms have massively improved and that machine is pulling out a full tank every single day. So uh, get a hygrometer, which you can also get from Oz Climate. It's a thing that you stick on the fridge. It's got a little digital screen. It'll tell you if you're over 60% humidity. If you are, uh, that could be due to rain. It could be due to just having had showers in an ensuite. Uh, You can flick on that dehumidifier and get the humidity back under 60 where mold won't be growing. Uh, unless you've obviously got a bigger water damage issue in the walls or something that you should always check out with a a professional, like a leak uh, person or a mold technician, building biologist. But if you've just got indoor excess humidity, you can prevent mold so easily by having a dehumidifier and a hygrometer to tell you when you need to flick that dehumidifier on. So they have those and their beautiful Winix air purifiers. I've seen a ton of really pretty little units uh, being uh, advertised on Instagram for, um, ah, what am I trying to say, those uh, air purifiers lately. They're small and cute and they've done a lot of work on the design. But then you look into the fine print and they're two-stage filters. That ain't going to be doing much for the dust or the mold or the dust mites or the pet hair that you've got going on in your house. You want minimum four-stage Five stage if it's a large space or you've got pets and the Winix air purifier range have got you covered with HEPA filtration, hospital grade filtration, really, really great units. So your code for ozclimate.com.au is LOTOXLIFE and that gives you an extra 10% off their already discounted prices. Enjoy. And let's hook into this conversation about iron. I learned a ton from Steph. I know you will too. And if you know anyone who's fatigued or confused about their iron levels or they've had an infusion and then fallen off the cliff again and feel like they're back at square one, uh, then this is absolutely the show that you want to share with them. And I thank you for doing so. Enjoy. Hello, Steph. Awesome to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And iron is something I've seen you posting about lately. And I thought, I have wanted to do an iron show for ages. And can I ask you as a a practitioner, what have you seen in clinic that have, like, I guess that you could call recurring themes when Mm -hmm. it comes to people having problems with iron? 
Yeah, good question. And I guess that is why I started doing a lot more work in the low iron space. So I'll answer your question in a second. But I always say that I didn't intend to sort of specialize in that area, but it was one, something I was seeing so often in Mm. clinic, but also something that was quite obviously mismanaged, which we'll talk a lot about today. So that's where I ended up, you know, sharing a lot more on social media and my podcast and in the work that I do. Um, And I guess there's kind of two recurring patterns that I see. One, it is quite common, but I also think it's actually overdiagnosed because of the way iron has been misinterpreted or Mm. the way like people have the way it's evaluated yeah the way it's evaluated the way people have conventionally been trained to pretty much just look at ferritin which we'll talk about today and so you know I often meet people who come to me with air quotes like low iron and they they don't have low iron right Mm -hmm. so then there's a whole other conversation well why are you symptomatic right because when someone is fatigued anyone would start with low iron and so then to hear that you actually don't have low iron, then the question is, well, why are you fatigued? And yeah. so that is where I think what can happen is it's that classic example of missing the forest for the trees because if you see low ferritin um, but you don't look for anything else, then you probably have missed your root cause. And so mm. that's where I come in to explain to the client if their iron is truly low and then if it's not, what we need to do to work out why they have their presenting symptoms. Yeah. And are there any other symptoms than fatigue Mm -hmm. uh, in the cluster of reasons that one might investigate iron in the first place? Yeah, there's so many. And I just mentioned fatigue because that's probably the most common. Yeah, and doctors Mm. would start with, you know, running an iron panel or what have you. But interestingly, low iron presents in many ways and probably the most common symptoms are the, the fatigue or the shortness of breath. Um, but that those symptoms can extend all the way up to things like anxiety, anxiety, or ironically, insomnia. Mm. And so it is a very broad array of symptoms. And you know, the human body doesn't work in isolation, right? No, so when exactly. I'm seeing someone, they're they've often got a few other things going on. And for iron, we definitely look at other cofactors and their nutrient status and their gut and their menstrual blood losses. And so it, it iron itself is multifactorial when someone has true low iron. But so too are many of our symptoms. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is not just called by caused by low iron, for example. So it is. But the other pattern, I'll just um, finish your first question with, the other pattern is that I think that conventionally, GPs are very good at, okay, you've got low iron, so let's make sure you don't have celiac disease and let's make sure you don't have internal blood losses and they might suggest you to see a gastroenterologist and all those things I think are great, but never has someone asked usually the female client why she or how many mils of um, blood she's losing each month. There's never a conversation about the actual why in her circumstances. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, a big gap in our understanding. And I work mo- mainly in women's health and most of the women with true low iron do actually have heavy menstrual bleeding driven by hormones. So that's obviously where we spend most of our time. Yeah to support her health, and then the low iron goes away. Mm, interesting. Mm. And so in terms of testing, let's come mm. back to that because there's the there's the 
snapshot testing and then there's the holistic testing, what would be the best way to actually investigate from a a blood test, let's say, mm-hmm. uh the the start of an iron conversation what how what do we want to make sure is the minimum we're looking at Mm. the minimum would be the fbe or the full blood evaluation so that you can have a look at all the red cell counts including hemoglobin um the other thing about an fbe is it looks at the whole immune system so Mm. you can actually understand if there is some inflammation which i'll come back to So minimum so far is FBE. Then we want the whole iron studies, which includes iron, transferrin, transferrin saturation, and ferritin. And then I like to look at cofactors like our B vitamins, B12 and folate. Mm -hmm. There are other things that you can look at. And I think if you're going to get a blood test that you may as well look at your thyroid and CRP for inflammation, because the other thing about iron is that if there is inflammation present, the body hides iron and it's called a pseudo iron deficiency driven by inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the inflammatory markers or those inflammatory markers sitting next to your iron panel, you can completely misdiagnose, go down a whole rabbit hole of treating air quotes, low iron when it's actually inflammation. And that's a big issue. So some of the things that I talk about online is making sure that at the minimum we're doing that CRP, mm. but the advantage of the FBE is there's other ways to identify inf- inflammation from an immune standpoint in that whole panel when it's read properly. Yeah. So it is a lot more thorough and certainly far more than just ferritin, which is too often the number. Like when people say to you they've got low iron, what they mean is they've got low ferritin because that's how it's been spoken about until now recently. Yeah, and that can happen in uh, holistic health as well as in conventional health reads where it's like, oh, okay, and now let's just supplement or now let's just take the thing in the chemist and we think we've dealt with it but we actually haven't dealt with it if we haven't looked at a big enough picture to see what's like contributing to it, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, and obviously I live and like practice in an echo chamber but most people are like, but why? Mm. Why do I have to take that supplement? Why do I have low iron? And that's actually the question that we should be asking because when you find the root cause and treat that, it goes away. And um, I think the advantage of our industry and social media and podcasts and how much people are now educating themselves and are incredible health advocates, we are finally asking that question. And Mm. we have to ask that question so we can always come back to the root cause. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people normalise taking a bazillion supplements mm-hmm. or um, a ton of uh, different medications and in both paths it it's often that we're not looking at why to actually be able to reduce that external dependence mm-hmm. uh, in the first mm-hmm. place. And so let's then have a look at... Um, determining true low iron so what makes you actually go down the let's boost your iron levels Mm. route Mm. yeah well the first thing that I look at is hemoglobin so Mm. that's kind of part of the issue is that it sits separately on that FBE yeah (laughs) and I think that gets missed whereas that's where 65% of our iron lives in our red blood cells right so it is the most important marker Mm. and so I definitely start with that where we're looking for sort of certainly greater than 125 grams per litre for a female and anything lower than that, depending on obviously the context, is where 
things are probably more concerning, like an iron deficiency anemia. So that's Mm -hmm. where, you know, we would treat things quite differently. But most women I meet have more than adequate hemoglobin, and this includes in pregnancy where our reference range shifts quite differently. Mm -hmm. And then we can order automatically, excuse me, we can automatically breathe a sigh of relief because we know that if our hemoglobin is adequate, that we're already, you know, we've already got a pretty good supply of iron in the blood, right? Which is where right. arguably our iron should be. It's the important Whereas, place. Yeah, yeah. Ferritin is the liver and it's it's so often been referred to as storage. And so I think that's led people to be concerned because if you have low ferritin and you have low storage, is that a bad thing? But, you know, we'll talk about ferritin. Um, It's certainly not the thing that I look at next, right? So next in line after hemoglobin is transferrin and transferrin is essentially a measure of your iron hunger. Mm. So normal for women of menstruating age who are not on the birth control uh, sorry, who are not on the oral contraceptive pill, normal transferrin sits between 2 and 2.5. And so anything greater than 2.5 certainly does indicate slight iron hunger. Mm. And so that's where I'd be like, okay, this person does actually need more iron. That doesn't necessarily need to be a supplement, of course, but that's where you would start to say, all right, well, iron is actually a key sort of nutrient or mineral for this person. Yeah. But then, of course, you've got to keep going. You've got to look at the transferrin saturation, which tells you more about the transport of iron around the blood where sort of 20 to 30% is optimal. Um, That tells you if you sort of certainly inside range, that tells you that there's enough iron moving around the body into the cells and tissues. But obviously less than 20% tells you there's an issue with iron transport Mm -hmm. but not with iron itself. So that's why we start to look at cofactors including copper and retinol yeah okay. in the diet so having a look at someone's food diary you can usually see what nutrients they're lacking quite mm. quite obviously especially when it comes to retinol because we've got a low fat era and we aren't a country who have really celebrated nose to tail until more recently yeah i was just a, I, I went straight to liver capsules or organ meats in general which mm. we've thrown out for so long throughout our low fat era and a more Australian way of eating like we used to with just eating, you know, breast meats and, and the lower fat products until recent years. And there's a reason there's obviously a huge liver capsule industry and yeah. constant discussions about pâtés or spiking your bolognese because we have been st- uh, deficient Starved, in vitamin literally. A. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, so... It sounds to me like if you just get a low iron diagnosis at your conventional health practitioner, you could benefit from seeing someone who reads a more comprehensive panel before making a decision. Would that be an accurate statement for people who are feeling a bit lost, still tired, not really getting anywhere? Yes, it's still low the year after when they test it again with the same conventional test uh you know i i i don't want to say um doctors suck because they don't they're amazing but i do want to say there are levels of education and understanding that are available to different types of practitioners which means we all actually benefit from having 
different people on our teams when we are dealing with the same fatigue issue, the same low iron. And I want to talk about some of the more conventional uh, stop gaps that are used like infusions and uh, I think it's Multifair uh, and nothing's really moving forward. It is 100% okay, in fact, advisable to actually start bringing someone else into your health team. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I was a GP, I would understand that I was a generalist yeah. and I would have other practitioners in the rooms next to me in my clinic and I would refer, right? Mm. I think that's the best way medicine or health should be done. Mm. But the other thing about what we didn't get to was, yes, your, the answer to your question is yes, like go and see someone else who's going to have a look at you as well because yeah. the issue with the ferritin reference range is, one, there's no consistency even inside Australia, let alone globally. So every blood test report you pick up will have a slightly different reference range depending on the lab. Wow. But largely speaking, the yeah. most common one is like 30 to 200. Mm-hmm. And that's as wide as a house. And unfortunately, Super wide. our reference ranges are already skewed by how they're determined, whether it is from the average of the population or in-house reference ranges. And if you're a menstruating female, your reference range will be very different to someone who's pregnant, to someone who is in perimenopause, who's postmenopausal, certainly to a male, certainly to someone mm. <laughs> a completely different gender. And yet we and all get volume. the same reference mm-hmm. range, correct? Yeah. And can I ask yeah. then, in terms of uh, getting your testing done, is there a specific place in the cycle that's then better for women to mm. test in who are pre-menopause? Mm. Yeah, well, of course there is. And as soon as you say to someone, well, when did you have your iron tested? And they they sort of go back and they think about it and they calculate it that it was like during their period or right after Mm. the penny drops. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's actually ludicrous to test for someone's iron surplus when she's had a period. Like I only ever test later in the cycle, like week three or, you know, aiming for a consistent time because we are going to be repeating this test. So Mm. the only way you can do a true apples to apples comparison in a menstruating female is if you get a pretty similar time point within her menstrual month. And it certainly Mm -hmm. wants to be further away from her cycle. The reason why I say week three though, is because certainly with women in their forties, their cycle shortens. And Mm -hmm. if you leave it a bit too late, the next period might have already arrived as well as the influence of uh, estrogen at that time of the month for for comparison as well. So if you you do week three, it's a bit of a sweet spot from being further away from the the menstrual period um, and then consistently from the hormone cascade that occurs at that point in the cycle. Yeah. But as soon as you say that to people, they're like, that makes so much sense. Why haven't we had that as common practice? Mm. And there's only really a handful of clients that I've spoken to over the year, years where their GP has given them pretty specific testing conditions. Mm. And this applies to a lot more than just the menstrual cycle. Like iron is really particular. You know, you have to be absolutely fasted, but no longer than 10 hours. That means no coffee or tea. That does mean that you should have water prior there are things like high intensity exercise and alcohol and certainly supplements that interfere with your blood test. And so there are a number of things that need to be considered in terms of the 48 hours prior to testing as well. Mm. And that's very rarely communicated. And so I see all sorts of iron results that go in the bin and that's a waste of everyone's time and mm. Medicare resources. Absolutely. And if we got it right in the first place, we would have a lot more clarity. Yeah. 
So and then no, we could treat it. Mm. No high intensity exercise 48 hours before or just mm-hmm. the day before? 48. Mm. And just stop all your supplements 48 hours before. Yeah, I mean, supplements, it, it, that's a little bit more nuanced, right? Like because it, an iron supplement you would have to stop if mm. you were trying to work out, am I ready to come a off True. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But if you were trying to work out if this dose was me, I uh, if this dose was for me, arguably you could stay on it. And that's where it's a bit more of a nuanced conversation that, that I have individually with my clients. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you, you can't stop your mag, that you have to stop your magnesium supplement necessarily, right? But yeah. that's where obviously the work that I do with my clients is all about giving them their individual advice as to how they can set up for the most precise pathology Mm-hmm. And that preparation is is absolutely key for, for all tests, arguably, but iron most specifically. Yeah. Okay. That's mm. really good to know. And then everyone can actually have a more successful experience going to their regular practitioner um, and generalist to make sure that initial figure is even worth discussing in the first place, right? That's right. If you've yeah. truly got low iron or if it was just inflammation or, you know, with, with the saturation, as soon mm. as you drink something, even if it's a little bit of almond milk in your tea before you go, the body's moving iron around the body, so the saturation will look low. You can see that. You can actually, mm. when, you, when you've when you seen as many iron panels as I have, you know when someone's confounded the test because you know what those patterns are. You yeah. can see they're, they're really unusual patterns that don't match up with a normal, you know, fasted iron status of whether yeah. someone's truly low iron or whether they're just deficient in cofactors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, in before we get on to talking about some of the the first hit solutions that are mm. often provided that often also don't change anything, I'd love to also ask about iron on the wheel of all the different minerals and perhaps you mentioned copper, for example. What can be some mineral um, imbalances, if you like, or interferences, like too much of something mm. else going mm. on, too much supplementation of something, maybe that hasn't been uh, uh, pinpointed that could also affect iron levels? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say from a advantageous point of view, like we spoke about the importance of things like B12 and folate and copper and vitamin A, but retinol in particular, so from those animal sources, like, yeah, we've got to zoom out and look at someone's intake and absorption of those cofactors Mm -hmm. to help their iron absorption. But, yeah, there are other things that interfere with iron, of course, and that's like caffeine and calcium and zinc and that's like the other side of the conversation. If you do meet someone who's taking a supplement, often they haven't even been told about when to take it. And that's mm-hmm. also quite frustrating for them because not that I necessarily prescribe synthetic iron supplements, but if you're going to do it, you actually want to do it properly, don't you, right? Yeah, <laughs> so you can at least see if that's going to work for you. Um, but you can't take it around coffee. If you are having like a higher calcium breakfast, you know, I'd be putting it in at the end of the day. If you had other, you know, prenatals or or mineral compounds where there was zinc or calcium, you'd want them to be separated by at least an hour, if not two. And, you know, it is quite nuanced, which is, again, I think just the information that's lacking when you see a generalist for this advice, whereas, you know, I and other practitioners like me have the time 
to spend with you to make sure you've got all that detail, pre-testing, post-testing with your supplement schedule, obviously with your diet and everything else, your your gut health and, of course, you know, hormones, if heavy menstrual bleeding does apply, it's, it's actually quite detailed. Mm, it is. <laughs> and, you, and you need that time. And mm. you've mentioned gut health a couple of times now. So what is the relationship there? Is it about absorption of nutrients? Yeah, of course, absorption is key, right? We say you are what you eat, but you also are what you digest and absorb. So Mm. we've got to understand if someone's got an absorption issue. And so if I meet someone, the first thing I do is I look at their results and I make sure they've got true low iron, right? So we're not just looking at ferritin, we're looking at everything in context. But then if it's true low iron, you want to then understand why, okay? So you'd look at if someone's eating, four serves of red meat and they've still got low iron, there needs to be a pretty big driver of their low iron. So that's where we turn to talking about her menstrual cycle and then her symptoms in general and her, her, her gut history, her medical history, her bowel movements, any previous medications like proton pump inhibitors, any gallbladder removals or issues digesting fats and that that whole history that we, we have the time to take and spend mm. time to listen to usually highlights where the root cause, where the drivers are, right? And yeah. especially in um, most of my clients, if she's losing greater than 80 mils of menstrual blood loss a month, that's where we go because that's the biggest driver. But, I mean, do I ignore her gut? No, because I think everything is connected. I want to then ask about iron infusions. I've had a few girlfriends over the years. Yeah, I've been you told I've had low iron, mm. so now I'm, I'm booking in for the infusion because I'm so exhausted. And But then so many people end up having awful experiences trying to onboard that iron Mm. and uh, not really feeling particularly better in the long term and not really fixing their low iron in Mm. the long term. Can you talk to us about why that would be happening? Uh, I feel like we've got some clues already with Mm. the the more comprehensive panels we talked about at the start, but uh, when you shove a whole bunch of iron into a person, uh, is it about the inefficiency of transportation that existed in the first place or the information that was preventing efficient transportation in the first place? Are these some of the things that mean an infusion won't work for somebody? Are there other reasons? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. It's interesting that that's your experience though because a lot of people um, that I talk to feel like the iron infusion was the only thing that could get them out of bed. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Great. I know, I know, mm. is it though? But like <laughs> that, that's where it's really hard for them to hear my critique of iron yeah. infusions because. Well, yeah, I'm always mm. a big fan of if you need an SOS so that you can actually work on something in the, like, you know, uh, yeah. in a more detailed way and that actually gets you motivated to do mm. the actual work you need to do, then great, you know. Um, but at the same time, you've got to do the work. Yeah. You've got to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. So what I'll say, if you look at the literature, the people that really only truly benefit from an iron infusion are those with iron deficiency anemia. So that's a hemoglobin below reference range and usually a ferritin under 13. Mm-hmm. And so if, I, if it's someone who's got that picture, yeah, that's where I think the conversation should start. Not that the iron infusion is the only answer, but that we should be having a conversation about pros and cons and other options and unique circumstances and things like that. But Mm -hmm. rarely 
is that the person that's been prescribed an iron infusion? Usually it's a female who arguably has a very normal ferritin because a ferritin of 30 is actually not abnormal for someone of menstrual cycle age, especially if her transferrin is, you know, 2.5 and her saturation sits in in between 20 and 30%. Like she's often told that's low iron. It's not low iron, right? And she's often Mm. told that the answer is the iron infusion. It's definitely not the answer, right? It's not the answer because her iron panel does not even indicate low iron. So that's part of it is that the results aren't being interpreted properly. Iron infusions are being offered just when we've got low ferritin Um, and then we're not really using iron infusions where they truly are shown to influence someone's health Mm -hmm. or that they'd potentially get the benefit out of it and that's the iron deficiency anemia. Got Mm. it, right. But the broader issue to think about is that your iron is is regulated by something called hepcidin Mm -hmm. and it changes throughout the day. So, for example, it's lower in the morning, climbs during the middle of the day and it decreases again at night. So mm-hmm. you'll never hear me tell someone to take iron in the middle of the day because hepcidin is rising and that will act like a little bit of an iron block. To, so an, it will impair the absorption. Right. But what else causes hepcidin to go up is a shit ton of iron. And so an iron infusion is is often 1,000 milligrams. Mm-hmm. That's a huge volume of iron. It causes hepcidin to rise. It blocks the iron absorption. And so quite ironically, it perpetuates the problem. Wow. Because hepcidin will stay high and you will see in someone's iron panel, so they'll get retested afterwards, everything will be really high and conventional wisdom will celebrate that and will Mm. think that the problem is over. But high iron is a problem because it blocks hepcidin Sorry, it increases hepcidin, which blocks the iron absorption. It causes microbial inflammation. Mm-hmm. So that's that's gut issues. And it is pro-inflammatory. So that's why people have a lot of symptoms. Got then, it. of course, it, it impairs the absorption, which, which means that original rise falls off the cliff again. Mm-hmm. So you meet people who six months, three months, a couple of weeks later, it's all over Red Rover and they're back to where they started from. And that's because right. they can't really absorb that much iron anyway, mm. but it actually makes the problem worse because it's blocked. So does the rise in hepcidin sort of almost act to protect the body from taking yeah. in too much iron? Yeah, that's wow. what it's there for. Yeah. Okay. And like in pregnancy, transferrin rises and that's a really clever mechanism of the body to allow your body to mop up more iron from the gut to get more out of you eat more out of what you eat but an iron infusion would stop that Mm -hmm. so it completely interferes with just one of the trillions of amazing things that a pregnant female does and adjusts to and creates equilibrium to for the whole term Mm. we're blocking that by giving an um, a huge dose of synthetic iron. Right. Wow, that makes so much sense when you break it down, uh, how we might actually want to be looking at uh, that and choosing a different route. So 
So, okay, well, what do we do when we have genuinely low iron? I, I mean, obviously we've talked about food. What does that look like though? What, how many serves? Mm. How much pate can we hook into? Mm. Uh, and can you just put a, a pregnancy uh, uh, indication as well there because a lot yeah. of people are still very worried about vitamin A and pregnancy yeah. and I just want to make sure everyone feels comfortable with the information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think if it's it's always individual, right? But mm. some general guidelines would be, you know, make sure you're eating adequate iron, like four palm size serves a week. Mm-hmm. It would be the equivalent of about two hundred grams of organ meats a week. Um, but a lot of people that I meet, at least, don't uh, don't you know don't feel quite ready to do that, or they might not enjoy pate. So that's why we can prescribe either liver powder to put into dinners or or liver capsules. And then sort of how much they need of that depends on the overall dietary intake. Mm. But I'd much prefer to start with liver capsules than a synthetic iron supplement. Right. And that's where in yeah. pregnancy, you know, organ meats are still demonised because of the Roaccutane disaster of the 90s. So yeah. women were taking Roaccutane for acne and it was causing horrific birth defects and it, it should never have happened. Like it was mm. absolutely awful. But unfortunately that led to this huge incorrect extrapolation that all vitamin A was bad and we saw yeah. companies completely pull vitamin A from their prenatals. We see those stupid PDFs still handed out with all the foods that you can't eat when you're pregnant, which are so incorrect and arguably causing a lot of the issues and nutrient deficiencies and iron issues because she's been told that they're going to mm-hmm. organ meats are going to cause birth defects. Whereas there is no evidence at all. Like you can look until the end of time that retinol in its whole food form is is nowhere near the same as considerably high doses of synthetic vitamin A. Like Roaccutane was 10,000 international units. Like you can't eat that in a diet, no matter mm. how much you try, but it's not even the same thing anyway. It's it's not a synthetic vitamin A. It's found in its whole food form as it exists in nature with all its cofactors. And in pregnancy, it's the thing that moves the needle the most because as soon as she is shown that her diet is completely void of vitamin A and that's one of the reasons that's driving her low iron and then she takes some liver capsules, it's it's completely fine. I mean, mm. pregnancy is way more detailed because, one, the reference ranges are wrong and people are being benchmarked against a standard reference range, as we said. But, two, it's very normal to see air quotes, lower levels when your blood volume has expanded by 50% because Mm. it's like diluted cordial. I mean, cordial is never the best analogy for a nutritionist to use, but it's the (laughs) one that people make make the best. It's the one we know. It's the one we know, right? So your blood volume, you know, when you're not pregnant is like just concentrated cordial and then Mm. you dilute it and everything is is diluted, as I said, but people interpret that as being low. Yeah. They haven't actually considered the fact that it's very normal that by about 16 weeks to 20 weeks is that considerable increase in hemodilution and that we have to reinterpret things. We need to look at things through that lens. Mm. It's probably not low. Yeah. And, and that's where we need to shift our reference ranges and our recommendation in pregnancy quite significantly. Yeah, wow. And uh, in terms of then uh, looking at the week, just so people can feel really clear about what they could add, like let's say they had a a thing of liver powder. 
to add to a bolognese for a family of four, what would that look like? It's a bit of a loaded question because some people find the taste of that to be quite overpowering. And when uh-huh. you work with families and they're yeah. like, I can't ruin this meal, I can't make it taste like any different. <laughs> I've got to get it across the kids. line for Mr. Yeah. Fussy Four. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I know that in my meal I can have a full serve of that liver powder. So if I'm doing a meal that serves four, I can put you know, 12 grams in there or I can Mm. put four serves in there and my family are fine. But I wouldn't probably start there, especially if it was someone who was a little bit newer to organ meats or if we were feeding little ones that are a little bit more particular, for want Mm. of a better word. So you might just start by putting one serve in there. Yeah. Roll it out, make sure everyone's fine, no one will be none the wiser, and then next time increase it and just do it gradually to make sure that you're adjusting everyone's palate and then not losing the meal that you were hiding all the veggies in and getting all the iron Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Mm. And then for uh, let's just say you're a 20-something professional, you're busy, you're out there working and capsules work for you, Mm. would it be like two capsules four times a week? Yeah, two okay. to four. Right. Yeah. Mm. And four times a week? With with well, liver. Take that every day. Yeah. With liver, because it's predominantly vitamin A, you can mm. take that every day. So that's mm. where people get a little bit confused. They think that liver is iron, and then they think, oh, do I need to take it every day or every second day? Because you hear me talking a lot about the alternate day dosage protocol, and that's when you're taking iron. Right. You really want to do it every day second day to increase the absorption by about 35% to avoid that hepcidin block mechanism. And that applies no more so than to Verigrad C and Multifer because they are 100 milligrams each and mm. we can only absorb between 40 milligrams a day. So 40 and 60 milligrams a day. So um, that's for iron supplements, certainly the high dose ones, but for liver because it's vitamin A, amongst other things, you can take that daily. Mm-hmm. And so the vitamin A is just helping us be more efficient with the iron we're getting in other places. Production and, and yeah. transport. Yeah. Got it. Fantastic. Mm. And so then let's turn to uh, red meat. Let's say we're having our um, slow cooked brisket or a nice steak. Uh, how often should we be doing that a week from an iron yeah, four, perspective? Four at the palm. Mm-hmm. Palm size times four. So Great. it's probably only, and that's what, can be important to kind of expand out in terms of the budget it's going to it's less than 500 grams a week right so if you cost what 500 grams of mince is it's really not that much it's not it's not it doesn't need to be an eye fillet and whenever I say to people how many serves of red meat do you eat they think I'm talking about steak Mm -hmm. so it's important that it can just be mince yeah, And it can be just mints, like just four serves. It doesn't need to be steak, doesn't need to be lamb, doesn't need to be anything expensive. Like mm. it just And it can also be doesn't need to be the hero. Way. If you actually prefer veggies and mushrooms, it's just about getting a little bit of it in there in the mix to total that 500 grams a week. Yeah, and that's the thing about my protein recommendations. They're only ever about the quarter of the plate. Mm. So they are more yeah. of the condiment really. Mm than it being like when people think about red meat, uh, I don't know about you, but I think it conjures up that steak that whole, you over have to the have plate this huge on the Time the magazine, totally. you know, all the carnival yeah. movement. And then once you obviously have a more detailed conversation, the client is like, oh, yeah, that's easy because I can cook one meal or it's just two mm. dinners that I have as leftovers the next yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
And then in terms of the plant world, what helps us in fruit, veggies, nuts, seeds with our iron uh, transportation uh, and absorption? So there are non-heme versions, like non-heme iron-containing foods. Everyone knows about spinach and lentils and legumes and certain nuts and seeds, but they're not as bioavailable, so we can't compare them to meat. So it's not a one-to-one replacement. Mm. But all those foods should form their place within a whole food diet. Like I think they're all incredible foods. Um, In terms of the retinol and the copper, that's the hard one. Yeah, You can use things like bee pollen, obviously not if you're a vegan, um, but it's not something that you consume in really high volume. So it's mm-hmm. not a trade again for organ meats. But I mean, I'm sure you've had a similar experience. How many vegans start taking liver capsules because they realize that they can't do it without mm. something and they're just yeah. not ready to eat it. Yeah. It's very common. It's super common. Mm. And then, you know, if they have a following, the internet shames them and it's just this <laughs> awful awful situation we've lost we've lost our way a little bit with um with people being able to explore that's completely fine but also being able to land wherever they land and Mm. not being shamed or judged for it Mm. I think we'd get a lot further a lot faster if uh if we could all commit to that right and so um so I feel like with the diet piece we know roughly what we're heading for but Something I notice in older women is they don't feel the need for as much meat. I've seen that in my mm. mom and her friends. Is that a postmenopausal yeah. thing where you actually can just drop back to a couple of serves a week? Yeah, and look, I, I want to be careful not to give blanket recommendations, of course, because yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's so individual. But, but yes. it, yeah, it's just something I've noticed. So our I requirements wondered whether... are higher when we're yeah. bleeding, and yeah. our requirements are higher in pregnancy, and mm. so that's where nutrition does actually need life stages attached to it. Mm. And then so too would our blood test reference ranges, right? Because yes. you will almost always see ferritin increase postmenopause mm. and often it goes too high and that's a problem because it's inflammatory and it affects her gut and it can affect her brain. And because we've only ever celebrated ferritin as being more, 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 and not Goldilocks like you said at the start, um, that's never looked at. And I can't tell you how many times I see high ferritin that we then support with um turmeric or other shellating tools because tools rather because it's it's it can actually create a problem like more is not a good thing Mm. so Mm. can we talk about that then and Mm. maybe hemochromatosis which of Mm. course we can bring our men into this conversation because that's something that's often diagnosed uh familiarly or um post-menopause, uh, just high iron gets given mm. a label. So what do we do on the other side of the scale when we've got too much? Yeah, so hemochromatosis is a blood storage disorder that is largely inherited mm-hmm. and men usually find out about it earlier because they obviously don't have menstrual blood loss to act like a mini blood donation and and they often need to give blood, donate mm. blood at a fairly re- um, high frequency, like every six to eight weeks because it's otherwise lethal, right? Mm. So that actually does, that's an extreme example of the significance of high iron, right? Yeah. It's not a good thing. Um, and then when women of menstrual cycle age often don't know about it until maybe perimenopause or later in their 40s when they start 
dropping down the number of cycles they have in a year. And then certainly post-menopause, when there's been 12 months of no menstrual cycle, you start to see the saturation increase and the ferritin increase. And often she's finding out about hemochromatosis for the first time. Mm-hmm. And if you do, if you do have hemochromatosis, then you do qualify for the treatments and and the blood blood donation is one of the recommendations. Yeah. But it's a bit more complicated for women who have hemochromatosis when they're menstruating. Okay. So bear with me for a second. But, for example, she can have high saturation, so it can be 45 or 50%, and she can have low ferritin still mm-hmm. because she hasn't got a lot of um, surplus yet because of her menstrual blood loss. That means she's not allowed to give blood because they'll send her away because her ferritin Uh is low. So she can't actually rely on the remedies that the the men would be using, for example. Mm. So that's where in the clinic we can actually use high-dose turmeric because it is a blood chelating agent, so it actually gets rid of the iron. Mm -hmm. So you can actually make some amazing differences to someone's high saturation by using turmeric. But then you also have to think about the people that are using too much turmeric that have low iron. And there's like another Goldilocks scenario as well because you yeah. see turmeric recommended as we all do because it's it's wonderful for so many things. It's great for your, your inflammation, your immune system, and, and people are using it more in winter and during the pandemic and so on and so forth. But too much turmeric can actually lower your iron. So it depends mm. on what you're dealing with as to whether that's appropriate and then it's sort of a dose-dependent um, situation. Mm. And so would you say when someone has a diagnosis either way that you then start working on the too low, the too high, that frequent testing would actually be a really good idea to just be quite closely monitoring what's going on? Yeah, your red blood cell turnover is about three months. Mm. So you can actually test every three months and see quite a different picture, which will allow you to check the intervention. You know, that's really important. Yeah, And if you do have low ferritin, even though that's obviously not the whole picture, as we've discussed, um, it's an advantage though because your doctor is allowed to order those repeat tests, whereas obviously in Australia we're constrained by Medicare and you're not allowed to just test for the sake of it. You certainly won't be allowed to have a test every three months just for the sake of looking at it if it's Mm. not low or high or outside their reference range. Yeah. But certainly from an iron, um, we are. it's actually quite easy to obtain frequency of testing Um, If you're outside the reference range, it's approved. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realise, certainly people I've spoken to, are like, oh, my GP won't test it or, you know, my specialist won't test it. I'm like, did you offer to pay? Uh, Because a lot of people don't realise that if you are forthcoming by saying, I'll foot the bill, I'm happy to, Mm. then they'll test it because they're under a whole bunch of pressures as well to keep testing to an absolute needs must. Uh, oh, yeah, the red tape around that mm. and the, the auditing process of yeah, those that awful. have been seen to over-refer. Is, yeah, yeah, you completely understand why it occurs. But, yes, you mm. can offer to pay or you can order it privately. Yes. You can just completely bypass a doctor altogether, right, which is a lot mm. of what my clients are doing because they don't want to go to a doctor to be offered an infusion. And this is not a criticism. This is how this is this one style it's treatment, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's how they're trained. Um, and so, if you order your own iron panel and and bring it to me or another practitioner, then the money is spent on the consultation, not on two different appointments and and so on and so forth. So it is a there are other ways to do it for sure. And in terms of then 
moving forward. So a person is investigating their fatigue. I just want to bring it back to kind of where we started and then really honing in on the key points. Fatigue, investigation, GP is the first port of call for this particular person, let's say, and we want to be testing the CRP. We want to make sure that's in there. We want to make sure the full iron studies is in there and the FBE so that we see the hemoglobin. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah. Amazing. And so then if you get a red flag around your iron levels there and you tested in week three, Mm. uh, let's remember that, uh, you could then book in to see a nutritionist naturopath type professional to investigate how they would approach it and other things they might look at and other questions they might ask in a more detailed comprehensive picture of you as a person and what might be contributing to your results. Anything I've missed there? Well, I would still look at the Bs. I would still ask for those B vitamins as well. The B12 and folate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then given so many people conventionally are still supplementing things like cyanocobalamin and folic acid and not bioavailable forms or methylated forms, if that suits your particular genetic profile, uh, would... I I always get told, don't worry about your B12 levels being super high because because you've got the MTHFR and we're supplementing that for your nervous system. Mm. So we don't really value that figure as a red flag if Mm. it's high. Um, I think a lot of people are then confused by having good folic acid levels, folate levels in a blood test or really healthy looking. I remember mine looked really high. But it was actually because I couldn't absorb the, the folic acid yeah. in its synthetic form. Mm. So that can sometimes require an extra, so why is that healthy? Are you taking something kind of thing? Or, yeah, well, ooh. I mean, if you see someone's B12 really high and it's not a supplement, well, that would mm. be a cause for concerns. So that's another mm. Goldilocks scenario, not to mention that I would always like, I'd prefer active B12, which yeah. is as it sounds, what's available to the body. That one's much harder to get through Medicare, I will say, although I am seeing a lot more of it being run recently. But Mm. that tells you a lot about someone's dietary intake. So optimal's 100. I would see a lot of 70s or 80s where immediately you know they're not eating enough red meat, right, because it doesn't come from anywhere else. So Mm. that's the other blood test that for people can be quite insightful because just saying eat four serves of red meat doesn't mean much, but if you show someone's blood test result where mm. you can see the before you know, what and after lacking. three months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's an, another sort of a good compliance driver too. Mm-hmm. And are there other, last question, other lifestyle factors like stress, mm. which I guess plays into inflammation sometimes, and also uh, sleep that can impact someone's iron levels in mm. the long term? Well, this the first thing that comes to mind is certainly the those that are dealing with the hormonal imbalance that's mm-hmm. driving the menstrual blood loss, right? So quite yeah. simply, <clears throat> I mean, look, again, multifactorial, but quite simply the most common cause for heavy menstrual bleeding is too high estrogen or inadequate progesterone to oppose that estrogen. Mm-hmm. And what's going to cause your progesterone to drop? It's cortisol because it's, it's a pregnenolone steal. You're, you have cholesterol pregnenolone and then a choice your Mm. body's going to choose cortisol any day of the week because it's a survival hormone progesterone is not we live you know postmenopausal women have very low progesterone arguably for decades so 
progesterone goes down the list of the priorities. Therefore, there's not enough progesterone to oppose Mm. estrogen. The endometrium lining thickens. The blood loss is heavy and the low iron goes round and round in circles until someone finds out that she's got low progesterone, right? So, yes, stress is huge. Mm. Stress is what I see a lot because of our evolutionary mismatch. We've got our lifestyle driving low progesterone. We've got our environment driving high estrogen. That's why heavy menstrual bleeding is so common. Mm. Of course, fibroids and cysts and endometriosis and adenomyosis need to be ruled out, which is why I'm always referring for a transvaginal pelvic ultrasound if there's heavy menstrual bleeding, but it's still largely diet and lifestyle and environment. Yeah. And I I wanted to finish on that because so often we focus on a granular issue, but it's very hard to get an actual healing, a stick of any treatment if we're not also addressing those those big basic factors. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And how often does it come back to that? I mean, I've Mm. been practicing for 15 years and I still always have to come back with everyone because progesterone is built off fats and proteins. Mm. So, of course, the conversation starts around her intake Mm. how much you're eating, often not enough, often not enough protein, not enough healthy fats, then certainly not enough micronutrients, and the list goes on. So we Mm. are always going back to the foundations of nutrition. Then you can't have a conversation about that without looking at their lifestyle and their stress management, which, of course, is then sleep and sleep hygiene. And here we are again, like we're back to those foundations. Mm. Always comes back to the foundations. (laughs) Steph, thanks so much for talking to us about iron today. I definitely feel clearer on uh, making a bigger picture of it when you're investigating it, and I hope everyone listening does too. And how can we connect with you? Yeah, so I'm online at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au and mostly over on Instagram and, and threads these days under The Natural Nutritionist. But it was great to be here. Thanks so much for exploring this topic with me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for joining us. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us 
get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.